0: you're listening to the co-main event podcast and now your hosts ben folks and chad dundas
1: that's right you're listening to another episode of the co-main event mixed martial arts podcast i'm chad dundas i got ben folks on the skype machine we're both senior writers in mma for the athletic And we talk every week about all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we got kind of an unorthodox setup this week. I'm over here in Portland at my brother's house. Going to be reading at Powell's tomorrow night. So we're trying to record this episode of the CME via Skype. Because obviously we had Conor McGregor and Donald Cerrone fight at UFC 246 over the weekend. But this is a wing and a prayer, man. I'm locked in a tiny room in my brother's basement. Up until about two minutes ago, there was a real loud bird right outside my window. Uh, So uh, we're going to see how far we get here. Maybe we'll finish this up with a phone call if the internet connection doesn't hold out.
0: Yeah, well, hey, I'm over here at my house, and it's Martin Luther King Day, so my kids are off school, and somehow my daughter has a friend over, and they're going nuts, and I'm really, really second-guessing my decision to give my daughter a set of walkie-talkies for her birthday.
1: Oh, that's weird. My my kids got walkie-talkies for Christmas.
0: Yeah, it's a great way to be woken up at like 6 a.m. with uh, somebody just, you know, just spouting nonsense and uh, calling you a poopy pants into a walkie talkie first thing in the morning.
1: I mean, I can't think of a better way to wake up, frankly. All right. uh, Just to remind everybody, tomorrow night I'm at Powell's Books in Portland. Wednesday I'll be in uh, Houston, Texas at Murder by the Book. And then Thursday I am in phoenix arizona at poisoned Pan. come see me if you live in those cities also the blaze is out tomorrow in stores go buy it if they don't have it ask them to order it for you it's if that they simple. don't have it slap them in the mouth that's right that's right I, well I, you know what i don't condone the violence at the stores but uh,
0: i condone I the shit out of
1: it whatever means necessary to go ahead and get the blaze let's get right into it though ben since i don't know how long we're going to be able to keep this up Conor McGregor obviously goes out there and uh, puts a whooping on Donald Cerrone over the weekend at UFC 246, a 42nd victory for McGregor. And you know what? This was kind of booked to be a quick victory for McGregor, and it certainly was. I just don't think anybody really knew that it was going to be that quick. We got some listener mail on the topic that we want to get to, but let's first just... Kind of talk our way through this fight and then maybe what we think it all means. Ben, what was your impression of uh, Conor McGregor versus Don Cerrone over the weekend? Well, if you're Conor McGregor, pretty good night
0: of work. You go out there, you don't even get hit cleanly once by Cowboy Cerrone. I think Cowboy Cerrone threw a head kick that got blocked, did not land a single strike in this fight. So honestly, his hair didn't even get messed up. He he came in there with (laughs) a slick back hair looking like Michael Douglas in Wall Street. Didn't even mess up his hair. That's how easy and quick the fight was for him. So he can't really complain about it if you're Conor McGregor. However, I do think that you make this – if you're the UFC, you make this pay-per-view a one-fight main card. And everybody can see that's what it is beforehand. And you've seen – the UFC seems to be reasoning, hey, Conor McGregor is going to bring the buys all by himself. We don't need a whole bunch of other stuff. Plus, we have a lot of other dates coming up to fill. So we don't want to take – you know, marquee fighters or or actual draws and waste them on this when we need them for other stuff. Conor McGregor is going to bring it all by himself. But then it creates a a certain resentment when the fight ends in 40 seconds. And a a lot of people were going, well, I paid just for that. And it was over that quickly. I didn't even feel like I I got a chance to settle in and enjoy a fight. And it's not like anything else on the main card was exactly blowing my hair back, as Chad Dundas would say. So I, I think that, there's a, a plus and minus to it. I mean, the good news is you get Conor McGregor out of there pretty much unscathed. He could fight again next weekend if you wanted to.
1: Yeah. I always wonder when this is how the, these kind of big uh, overhyped fights go. People shell out $70 for the pay-per-view, especially at UFC 246 when, as you mentioned, there wasn't a ton of other, of other stuff uh, on, on the card that seemed to be of interest. Although I think, you know, you got some fairly – interesting happenings during the actual pay-per-view. Clearly some stoppages, some some kind of entertaining and weird fights. But I always wonder if people are going to look at like a 40-second win for Conor McGregor, which is kind of exactly what the UFC wanted here, as you said. Like he didn't, he didn't get hurt. He didn't get uh, messed up in any way. He's going to be able to return to action probably whenever they need him and certainly looked – sharp, on point, like he had some new tools in the toolbox, and blew right through Donald Cerrone, which is probably everything you can ask for from a matchmaking standpoint, but at the same time, I always wonder, man, if you shelled out 70 bucks and you get a 40-second fight, and as this fight went, sometimes they're a little bit funky, like, uh, I don't even know if you could call this a a fun fight, I thought it was just kind of like a weird exchange between Cerrone and and McGregor that ends up with McGregor getting the TKO victory, I always wonder if people are going to think that that's worth it.
0: Well, yeah, and you see a lot of people typically among uh, maybe the people who don't watch a ton of fights, especially going, hey, this looks fixed to me. Yeah. Um, Which, as we've said before, anybody who thinks fights like this are fixed, it just kind of shows that you don't know what a fix usually looks like because they are not this convincing usually. And most people are not going to be like, you know what, I'm going to fix this fight. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm just going to stand there and let him blast me with his shoulder in my nose over and over again because that will make me look cool. Um, And then I'll let him kick me upside the head. Like nobody is doing that on purpose. Uh, But it it does just send a lot of people away dissatisfied. Also, though, the question is going to come out of this fight inevitably, no matter how it goes, is did that convince you that Conor McGregor would do any better a second time around against Khabib? And, you know, Dana White was given that fight, that, that rematch. For me, I mean, you have him go in there against a completely different style fighter and a guy who is known for starting slow. When Conor McGregor is known for starting fast I and mean, being really dangerous early on, he puts that guy away in 40 seconds without engaging in any of the aspects of MMA that were a weakness for him against Khabib. Yeah. You know, it's an impressive win and it's a good highlight to add to the reel for Conor McGregor. But it does not convince me at all that he is so much different or so much better and would give Khabib any new problems that we didn't see the first time.
1: Yeah, I think it's weird that they are so insistent that that is the fight to make in the aftermath of this. Although, you know, that maybe they feel like that's the one that is far and away going to make the most money. Dana White is out here talking about uh, Hagler Hearns and Ali Foreman and how it's a it's a global fight and all that. And maybe we can get into that in a few minutes. The idea that this fight was fixed, I think, is kind of a strange one, even though the the action in and of itself was kind of unorthodox. I feel like you got to give Conor McGregor his props for throwing the most effective shoulder strikes in the history of mixed martial arts uh, during the the 40 seconds that this one went on. But while it might not have been fixed, I will say it was somewhat, I don't want to say shocking, but it was interesting to me. That Cowboy Cerrone did not sound at all surprised that he lost when he got on the mic with Joe Rogan after this one was over. He only sounded surprised that it happened so quickly. I believe his his exact words were, oh, man, this happened this fast. I got my ass whipped early. So that kind of told the story for me as far as where uh, Cowboy Cerrone was maybe even subconsciously head into this fight. Like he must've known just as the rest of us knew that he was picked out to be Conor McGregor's opponent because of those attributes that made him a good matchup for, for Conor McGregor. And so it didn't seem like the outcome was at all a surprise to Cerrone.
0: Yeah. And that was one of the things we wondered about beforehand too, right? Was, was Cerrone coming in here to win this fight or was he coming in here to give people a show that he thought that they expected out of him. And you do kind of have to wonder about it, especially when everything about the matchup beforehand was if Conor McGregor wins, he's going to fight for the title. We're not even going to talk about if Donald Cerrone wins because that's just not really not in anybody's plans. And so, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say he came in here thinking, I'm going to lose, but it didn't seem like he came in here thinking, you know what, this is the one shot I have to to turn it all around. This is the only fight that I got to win this one no matter what, no matter how I have to do it. It didn't seem like he had that mindset. It seemed like the mindset he had was I got to get in here and give people a show. Yeah. And so if he was disappointed. Maybe it was disappointed that he wasn't able to give people a better show than that. Uh, but, I mean, it is pretty consistent with – the knock on Donald Cerrone, which is that if you get on him early and if he doesn't have a chance to really settle into the fight and find his rhythm, then he's a lot easier to deal with. And that, so in that sense, kind of where getting right after him there and kind of surprising him early on, that's exactly how you'd want to play it against a guy like Cowboy.
1: All right, let's squeeze in this listener mail from Anthony Prokopchuk who writes – Watching Cerrone on Saturday night was a sad yet enlightening experience. It's obvious that he was going to do the damn thing, or that he is going to do the damn thing until the brakes come off. Is it time for the UFC to borrow a page from the Bellator playbook and make some fun fights with the old guys? I'd watch the shit out of Cerrone rematches with either Anthony Pettis or Robbie Lawler. I feel like this is kind of an interesting question in the aftermath of UFC 246. The thing that I wrote on The Athletic kind of confronted the idea that Donald Cerrone has long been one of the funnest fighters in the UFC and is one of these guys who has become marketable and entertaining because he has this ability to continually offer fights that are entertaining to the fans. And that was after UFC 246, I was forced to grapple with the idea of like, you know, what does Donald Cerrone's career look like if it is, if it is no longer fun? Yeah, that, that
0: is true. I mean, especially because I mean, you can criticize him and be like, hey, the guy's on a three-fight losing streak. He's on a three-fight losing streak to three of the best guys in the lightweight division. But then that is something where maybe we just need to reevaluate and realize he's not that guy anymore. He could still be the other guy. He could still be the other guy who has some fun fights out there. And I don't hate the idea of you know Anthony Pettis or Robbie Lawler or something, but – there is also the possibility, you know. ESPN ran this thing beforehand where they are talking about all the physical damage that Donald Cerrone has suffered, both in his MMA career and just like you know, riding Bronx and climbing <laughs> rocks and all kinds of other crazy shit he does. The you kind know, of they, stuff we all do in our in well, our off time, definitely. you know. And he has suffered a lot of injuries, but that also makes you realize. There's a strong potential that Donald Cerrone will not be the guy who just kind of has a gradual decline with age, that he might be the guy who falls off a cliff, uh, You know, not not literally this time. But in terms of just what he's able to do physically, all that stuff can, is going to catch up with you at some point. And there's a very real possibility of what we're seeing right now is it catching up with him. And then you're right. It's going to be a whole lot less fun to have Donald Cerrone like, hey, the guy's going to go out there and just give you a bloody wild show. Except if all the blood is his, it's not so much fun anymore, especially when you know people have a lot of affection for Donald Tony. That's one of the reasons you, you get him for a fight like this.
1: Yeah, and he's definitely taken a lot of damage in his last three outings, you know, the Connor McGregor fight, the Justin Gaethje fight, and the Tony Ferguson fight were all you know the Tony Ferguson fight was a meat grinder, the Justin Gaethje fight he just kind of got blasted, and then Conor McGregor went and just rolled through him. Like he wasn't even there. So I think it does raise questions about Donald Cerrone as we move forward. And and like the fact is, we were always going to get to an uncomfortable point with Donald Cerrone. Like there was never any other way that this story was going to go just because of the way that he has handled his career. Uh, You know, the extent to which he's fought. Obviously, it's it's had a lot of of uh, positives for him. It's like he's become one of the most recognizable personal brands in the UFC. He's become this beloved figure. But at the same time, man, when you go out there and you fight four or five times a year, like he did kind of during the, the real prime of his career, there's going to be physical consequences for that down the road. And, and you know, now he's 36 years old. He's almost 37. And I think that you're starting to see, I mean, I don't think we're to a place where it's real, real sad with Donald Cerrone yet. I think he just kind of caught a hot one against Conor McGregor. But I think that it's on the horizon, maybe even closer than the horizon. It seems like we are rapidly marking a trail toward an uncomfortable position with Donald Cerrone. And frankly, there's no timeline where he makes a graceful exit from the sport. He's not even talking about that. You know, he's talked somewhat wistfully about retirement in the past, but at the same time, like he is the guy who is gonna do this as long as he possibly can.
0: Well, now you're gonna force me to read a tweet from Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. I hate to say it, but Cerone is washed.
1: Oh man. Andrew Yang said that? That's right. Goodness gracious, that's that's a that's a that's a hot take. That's a that's a rough go there from from Yang, but I guess you know you're running for president, you got to call him like you see him.
0: Listen, he didn't get to where he is right now by playing it safe, Chad. I guess he, that's true. He's the guy with- Bold visions, bold opinions about the future of America and about MMA, and I kind of love it.
1: <laughs> uh, let's talk Conor McGregor here for a few minutes. Uh, Dana White is insistent at the post-fight press conference that the fight to make is Habib Nurmagomedov. Meanwhile, it seems like everyone else in the support thinks that the fight to make is, in fact, Jorge Masvidal, who shows up in his bleeding housecoat at this event. Uh <laughs> is in his Jorge Masvidal style way is very upfront. When Megan Alevi from uh, ESPN and the UFC asks him, why are you interested in Conor McGregor? He leans over to the mic and says the money. And so here we are. Like, I feel like uh, a 170 pound fight, or some people are even saying do it at the one six, five. I feel like that is a, is the fight everyone wants for Conor McGregor yet next. And yet the UFC seems to be 100% myopically focused with the damn telescope on Khabib Nurmagomedov, Conor McGregor, too, which to me is the worst possible matchup you could make for the Irishman if you want him to be around and viable for three fights this year.
0: You know, I kind of have a theory about that. I'm not even sure yet that I totally believe the theory, but here it is. You ready for it? I couldn't possibly be more ready. The UFC, deep in their, their heart's brain, they understand. That in this sport for too much longer and also is not too far away from getting beat by somebody else again, and it's kind of deflating that balloon, perhaps permanently, or at least making him into a non superstar. And so they're looking around at these other potential matchups like Jorge Masvidal or Justin Gaethje or something like that, and they're going, Nope, too high a potential for Conor McGregor to get beat and it, to ruin what we see as. The biggest money fight possible, a rematch with Khabib. Yeah. And so they're going. You know what? Let's not let's not push it here. We got what we wanted out of this. We got a Conor McGregor victory over Donald Cerrone. Now we can say he is writing a a winning streak that is holding steady at one, and that is good enough, my man. We're going to go ahead and book that fight and rake in all that money, and uh, not try to look too far ahead in the future with uh, a lot of these unknown variables.
1: Yeah, I think that there's definitely something to that. They know that the Habib Nurmagomedov rematch, at least worldwide, is the, is the fight that's going to make them the most money. And maybe they don't want to risk it because they think there's a possibility he could lose to any of these guys that are the uh, most likely next opponents for Conor McGregor. I saw that the uh, the guy who always emails us with the odds... Uh, Jimmy Shapiro emailed this morning to, with some odds that said, uh, Jorge Masvidal is kind of like a slight favorite against Conor McGregor. If they were to fight clearly a Justin Gaethje fight would be very, uh, difficult and dangerous for anybody. Justin Gaethje can go out there and knock you out. The Nate, he's already split a pair with Nate Diaz and the one that Conor McGregor won was very close. And so maybe that's, maybe that's what we're thinking here. Maybe it's a, uh, Maybe the UFC is, is showing their cards a little bit as to what it actually feels about the, the future viability of Conor McGregor. They're kind of uh, – they're hot hotshotting the guy to use some professional wrestling lingo. They're going to try to get what they can out of him before, before he burns out. Maybe that's – maybe that actually is the philosophy here. I don't know. Um, all right. Let's do this question from Danielle Harris about uh, Holly Holmes, a.k.a. Holly Holm and uh, Raquel Pennington. She writes, Holmes-Pennington was not a good or entertaining fight. I think we can all agree on that. However, let's take a few minutes and give praise to Holly's tremendously improved clinch-slash-body control. Raquel started training as an MMA fighter before she could legally drink, but Holly, with varying results, has truly evolved as a mixed martial artist, moving from kickboxing to boxing and adapting to grappling. Slight praise aside, if the UFC considered Liz Carmouche stifling to its talent growth, what's next for the preacher's daughter? So yeah, Holly Holm goes out there and gets a dominant Uh, unanimous decision victory over Raquel Pennington, this in the women's bantamweight co-main event at UFC 246. And it was, in fact, a fight that looked a little bit different than uh, I think a lot of people were expecting. Holly Holm out there doing her best Randy Couture impression, pushing Raquel Pennington up against the fence, kind of grinding on her in the clinch. Uh, not, Not as much range striking, I think, as we are used to seeing from Holly Holm. And again, Holly Holm in kind of a weird position with the UFC. I think as our email here implies that she's 38 years old, she's already spent some time as the women's bantamweight champion. Uh, she is three and two in her last five fights, and before that she had a three-fight losing streak uh, throughout uh, 2016 and the beginning of 2017. And yet she'll show up for, for a co-main event and be, you know, somewhat popular, somewhat marketable UFC fighter Holly Holm.
0: Yeah, and I agree that you do have to respect the well-rounded fighter that Holly Holm has made herself into in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, She has surprised us a couple times with going into a fight where you think, okay, Holly Holm, kickboxer, she's going to stand there at distance and try to keep it there. And then she can go in there and she can take somebody down and she can control them on the mat. And you're like, okay, I'm impressed that you have been able to round out your game and kind of add that to the overall skill set. Also, not a ton of fun to watch at times. Yeah, And she kind of hit a roadblock where it doesn't seem like anybody's super interested in seeing Holly Holm fight for the title again, at least not right now. She's fought a lot of these other people and had uh, a lot of fights where they weren't terribly memorable, for, or at least not for the right reasons. And then you get to a point where you're going, she's being paid a lot of money, and what do you do with her? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I still feel like Holly Holm is one of the more kind of baffling personalities in mixed martial arts. I mean, you just see the athleticism and the size and the sheer potential there. And also the fact that she walks around kind of looking like the kind of fighter, the UFC likes to promote in the, in the women's divisions. And you think, you know, she should be a a worldwide superstar. Like she to me could have been the person to either pick up the mantle after defeating Ronda Rousey and, and run with it or like, you know, had she been in the sport a little bit longer and had been promoted to the extent that Ronda Rousey was promoted, she might've been a Ronda Rousey type figure. She just, she checks all of the boxes for, uh, you know, a potential women's superstar in the UFC, except that when she gets out there actually in the cage, and again, it feels kind of weird to criticize her, but she feels like one of the more frustrating people to actually watch. And maybe it's just because when you see her, you think that she should be able to go out there and blow the doors off almost anybody. And the way she fights, you know, clearly she has the striking skills to, to put almost anybody away as well. But she just, like, she doesn't fight with that sort of aggressive uh, urgency, maybe, that that it takes to, to be, like, a consummate finisher in the UFC. And in, in this fight, again, she's like it's a you know as you often see from the Jackson Winklejohn camp it's it's like as if she goes out there with the exact right uh game plan to beat Raquel Pennington uh uh such putting Raquel Pennington continually in these situations that it seems like Pennington may have not prepared all that much for and and couldn't really get herself out of and yet the end result is Holly Holm grinds out this this fairly tepid unanimous decision win like it's a win she sort of apologized on the mic afterward that she would have liked to show some more of her skills. But to me, like, it just continues to be frustrating just because it feels and appears like Holly Holm is capable of greatness. And then she she goes out there and, and doesn't necessarily achieve greatness in the actual fights.
0: Yeah, but also at the same time, you're the UFC and you booked as your co-main event rematch between Holly Holm and Raquel Pennington. You can't be surprised necessarily that this is the fight that you got out of it. And it also tells us that you weren't really looking to stack this card from top to bottom. You you looked at this one, you thought good enough.
1: Yeah. All right. Here is a question from Martin Gerritsen who writes, so a lot of talk coming away from UFC 246 will be about Donald Cerrone's place in the UFC and whether or not he should retire. But what about Anthony Pettis at 32 years of age? He should have a lot of fight left in him, but his record has been pretty awful of late after winning 10 of his first 12 Zufa fights. He's now lost eight of his last 12. He's changed weight classes more often than Jonah Hill, ouch, and keeps telling us how he feels better than ever at each new weight, but the results remain poor. What should be next for Showtime? Does he get released by the UFC? Uh, Thanks for the kick-ass show and please discourse. I mean, I don't know that there's any chance at all that Anthony Pettis could ever get released by the UFC because even though he has not been terrific recently, there are other people out there who would love to give Anthony Pettis a job. So I think he's sticking around the octagon as long as he wants to be there. But the other por- uh, points I think ring true, especially in the wake of uh, this loss to Carlos Diego Fajera via uh, second round rear naked choke in the in the pay-per-view opener in a lightweight fight here at UFC 246. Ben, it seemed like for a long time, uh, Wheaties box Anthony Pettis seemed like he was going to be a huge, huge mixed martial arts star. And now, at a at a relatively young age, it feels as though we're kind of hanging around picking up the pieces here.
0: Yeah, it does. And I I too have noticed that phenomenon that whatever weight he's at, at the moment, he feels great and he can't believe he ever did any other weight class. That looks to me like a fighter trying to search around for the solution and trying to just pin it on other stuff that he can change more easily. And when you watch him in the fight, especially like this fight here, uh, the the second round in particular where he got taken down and got submitted there and he's just like, it looks kind of uninspired. You know, and, and that that is a shame to see, and that makes you wonder what you're supposed to do after that, uh, especially something like this. Because there's a fight, Carlos Diego Ferreira is, is a tough guy and a guy who has a lot of potential to come in there and beat you, but when you lose that fight, it's not like there are a lot of people who are right now riding the Carlos Diego Ferreira bandwagon. So it's like it's, it's a risky fight and one where, where there wasn't a ton of upside, even if you win, but then a lot of chance for you to go in there and lose that fight. And I don't know. It's... It, it, I don't know if that's the UFC looking at Anthony Pettis right now and being like, all right, let's squeeze the name value and get some other people some wins to kind of try to help them out because we don't see a future here.
1: Yeah. All right, Ben, we're switching over to the uh, to the cellular phone here because our Skype connection was kind of starting to to crap out on us. But we'll take this question from Grayson Wagner about Macy Barber. He writes, uh, What do you guys make of the doctor checking Macy Barber's knee between rounds? Then he says, go Wheat Kings, by the way. I have to confess, I don't know who the Wheat Kings are. I believe they're like a minor league hockey team. Okay, all right. Go Wheat Kings, Grayson Wagner. Yeah. Then what What about the uh, the biggest upset on the UFC 246 card here? You had uh, Roxanne Mataferi shock the world and beat Macy Barber in the uh, the featured prelim, I guess is what you're calling it. Unanimous decision, thirty twenty seven across the board, except for thirty twenty six, a big win for the veteran, the beloved veteran, Roxy Modafari. Um, and you know, did this de- derail the hype for Macy Barber? And what did you make of the uh, of the referee there checking out Macy Barber's knee?
2: Well, it, it pumps the brakes on the hype for Macy Barber, certainly, and but maybe that's not a terrible thing. At twenty one, and slowing the rise up the ranks a little bit. Because we've talked about it before, especially in a lot of those women's divisions right now in the UFC, there's not a lot of middle ground, and it's really easy for you to go from winning a couple fights against people lower down the ranks to the UFC just kind of being like, we don't know what else to do with her, so title shot, and then you get her overmatched too soon. So maybe this is not the worst thing. But was weird, especially the thing, I mean, people, my, my dad especially wanted to talk to me afterwards about how the you can do a, a pretty accurate test for an ACL tear, um, by feeling the knee and, and testing the movement, like right, how much play there is in the knee. Um, but if you come away from that, if you're a doctor and you go, uh, hey, I think that knee ligament might be torn. I want to go in there and check it. And you check it, and your conclusion is, yep, there's a tear in there. And then you're like, she's good to go. <laughs> then what was the point of the test? Like what what would have been cause for you to be like, nope, this test confirms that she should not continue fighting. I, I don't really know what, we're, what we were trying – push there and I also wonder about her corner letting her continue for that third round because it was clear that she was having a hard time just standing up under her own power on that knee and she's a stand-up fighter she's in a fight against somebody who she definitely does not really want to be on the ground against so what are you thinking her chances for victory are there You, you might be better off at that point realizing like hey we've lost this one and let's not do any more damage to the knee let's stop it now and have a better chance of her being able to come back and fight sooner. And so now they say, you know, the, at least the report I saw out from MMA Junkie was she has a complete tear in that ligament and is going to be out for at least nine months. So that to me, you know, that's not uh, a great sign. Uh, but also, it's, it's hard to know. if they're, they're saying we think she probably suffered the ligament tear in the first round. And so it's hard to know, like, was this a fight where maybe she would have beaten Roxanne Monteferri, if for knee ligaments held up. Maybe is it that Roxanne Monetary was putting on her, and that's what led to the knee ligament tear. I don't know, but uh, it, it did seem to be one of these fights where we go, okay, maybe we got a little too excited too soon about this young prospect.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely a uh, a wake up call, maybe for Macy Barber and and for uh, the the hype that she had acquired so early in her UFC career. Uh I also feel like once again this speaks to the idea that you know, a lot of times either on this show or one of our Patreon properties or over on the athletic live chat that we do, people continually bring up this idea, either pro or con, about um building up MMA stars by getting them some winnable fights, you know, more of a boxing style uh matchmaking philosophy of of trying to, to for lack of a better term, pad people's records, turn them into uh, bigger and bigger stars by getting them fights that we think they can win. And, and I think, I feel like we continually say in mixed martial arts, it's not always as easy to, to get that done as it is in boxing. You know, there's just so many ways to lose so many different things that can happen to you in an MMA fight that I feel like if you book these, these, these very one-sided fights where you think that Macy Barber is going to go out there and tear through Roxanne Modafferi and become, you know a step closer to being the UFC star that that matchmakers and promoters clearly want her to be there's just a lot of ways for that to go wrong man and we saw this uh at UFC 246 Roxanne Modafferi obviously uh kind of thrashes Macy Barber really and Macy Barber now suffers this injury that's going to keep her out for an extended period of time so i just feel like it's another reminder that you know that 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 style of matchmaking was not popular in mixed martial arts for a reason. I feel like every time you try to do that, you know, you can look at Aaron Pico, you can look at some other, I think, high-profile examples. Like, you end up in these situations where uh, one of these fights that's supposed to be a gimme turns out to be a loss for the the person that you're trying to promote. Yeah. All right, let's uh, – Do this uh, question from victor sanchez who says ufc 246 was a tough night for rufus sports fighters it just is it just me or do macy barber and showtime pettis have some of the same skill gaps both have the same upright stance and no head movement they both lack basic foot footwork they both seem to get uh by on size and athleticism and then they both seem to do poorly against strong wrestlers slash grapplers is this an individual problem or a rufus sport problem Oh, well Yeah. Quite quite the indictment there. Yeah. We're calling it a
2: systemic issue.
1: I mean, I don't don't know. know. I think Rufus board is probably one of the top camps in MMA for a reason. They've, they've had a lot of success with a lot of different people. And so like, if, you know, I'm not as good a technical fight analyst as I think a lot of the people out there, you know, Patrick Wyman, for example, or, uh, maybe Sean Sheehan or, uh, Jack Black. But at the, at the same time, uh, I don't know. I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say, I think you're probably dealing with individual issues here rather than like a, a, a camp wide situation. And there have been
2: times when we have seen
1: Anthony Pettis have
2: pretty good footwork and and, and look pretty good. So I don't know if we, I think maybe this is a little bit of recency bias here that we're just looking at me. i like, all these people from Rufus sports suck and they're not doing anything right over there. I I don't know if that's totally fair. Um, I also think though, that like with Macy Barber, especially she's 21. And she's pretty new at this. I don't know if we want to be looking at her and being like, just we're going to diagnose all the problems that she has and will have forever and ever. Amen. And then we're going to lay on a two groups the doorstep. Uh, that doesn't seem quite fair to me.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, here's one from Eric Miller who writes mean Mo Green might not have pulled off the win, but he's solidly on my quote unquote, my guys list now that uh fun is that was fun as hell and his defense of the choke in the first round was le- legendary a heavyweight infant at 33 years old with low mileage i think there's a chance he becomes a capital g guy uh yeah man this fight between Alexio Linick and and the crochet boss Maurice Green on the main card of UFC 246 a heavyweight scrap obviously uh even though Alexio Linick wins by armbar in the second round like I don't know, man, if you're going to send a couple of kind of mid-level MMA heavyweights out there to, to compete on the main card of a, of a big selling pay-per-view, I kind of feel like Alexi Olenek, uh, versus Maurice Green at least was the fun kind.
2: Yeah, no, that could have been a lot worse and we both damn well know it. This, this one must've been a heartbreaker for you though, to your out a crochet boss come up on the losing end.
1: Yeah. I mean, we still have no idea how, how high he can fly, Ben, uh, But at the same time, like you look at Maurice Green, clearly he's he's a huge uh, physical specimen. Like he he hits hard. He seems to have a terrific attitude about the sport. I think he's working with good people out there in Minnesota with Brock Larson, the former WEC and UFC fighter. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if that Maurice Green is going to turn around and become UFC heavyweight champion. But I I do agree that he could be a, a fun uh, mainstay kind of in this UFC heavyweight division for as long as he, as he wants to stick around. I mean, the guy talks a great game. He's got kind of like a goofy, but interesting gimmick as the crochet boss. And then he's going to go out there and give it to you every, every time, like he's going to give you everything that he has. And even though, uh, he does not get the win here against Alexi Olenek, I think we also got to recognize that, uh, 42 year old, what, like 70 fight veteran (laughs) Alexi Olenek. Has been a, a hard nut to crack for a lot of people in the UFC. He's got wins over Mark Hunt, he's got wins over Junior Albini, he beat Travis Brown back in 2017. So even though he rolled into this Maurice Green fight on the on the uh the heels of back-to-back losses to Alistair Overheim and Walt Harris, both of those by first round KO, uh you know, he's Alexi, you can't sleep on Alexio Linick, man. He's just he's the epitome of the crafty ass veteran. He's going to go out there. He's got one thing that he does. He likes to wrestle you. He's a Sambo guy. And if he gets a hold of you, it's, it's a nightmare for you. So he's still got that thing he can do. And he was able to do it against Maurice Green. So you got to give him his props.
2: You know, I, uh, there was a moment there where I watched him, you know, he was messing around with the scarf hold. And I was like, is he going to sneak that forearm in there and get himself another Ezekiel choke? Yeah. Cause if he does, I might lose my goddamn mind.
1: Yeah. All right. Here is a question from Aurelian Smith, Jr. So there's one we might have to check out on the Google. Uh, he says, please tell me you've seen this video by Aaron Bronstetter in which he harnesses Dana White's gambling addiction into a thoughtful and somewhat sincere interview. Ben, have you seen this?
2: Yeah, this thing yeah, that, so. uh, it, Bron- it is a good way to peel to Dana White's uh, existing interests.
1: Yeah, Dana or uh, Bronstetter has done this a couple times now. He does this interview with Dana White where he basically like gives him a bunch of odds and then asks him to make predictions about what he thinks is going to happen in the UFC in the in the next year. So they just did the one for 2020 somewhat recently, and it is a cunning gimmick to spring on Dana White because it doesn't, you know, he it's like he can't bring himself to to or doesn't even uh, give him the option to tell you that, like, oh, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll let's wait and find out. with the, so we'll, we'll see how it goes, whatever stock stuff it yeah. normally says. It's like he can't bring himself not to put down bets. He's going to put he's going to look at the odds and he's going to put down bets every single time.
2: Well, so we do appreciate hearing from uh, Jake Roberts.
1: Right. On this podcast. At Alan all times. Smith Jr. down there from uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia. There you go. Did, uh, did anything here that Dana White said surprise you? Like he, he's obviously playing the odds here. I was kind of interested to see that. I believe he took uh yes on the question of whether or not the UFC was going to do an event in Africa in 2020.
2: Yeah. I mean, he doesn't have actual money down on these, right? No. So I, I don't know how, how accurate it necessarily is. Like some of them could just be like aspirational, like, I, I believe Dana White might really be telling himself that, like, yeah, we do. This is the year that we make that happen and we're going to figure it out. And hey, we're still at the beginning of the year, so anything can happen by the end of the year. Um, I don't know. I mean, it does seem like when you look at some of the guys you got on the roster right now who could really make a huge event for you in Africa, like it could be a real, like the UFC showing off that it has a, a bunch of star fighters from like somewhere in Africa you could really do something with that. Yeah. Um, and yet, I don't know. I also wonder if the UFC looks at it and goes like, okay, yeah, we could do something there, but like, we're really looking at markets we think would just be more lucrative for us rather than popular with a bunch of people.
1: All right. Let's, let's do this question from Devin Scott, who writes, I've been in an NFL football pool for pool for five years where I cashed twice and won once. Want to know my secret? I have never watched an entire game of football in my life, with the exception of going to one live CFL game. I think this is the reason I have been bombing at MMA parlays, as my friend, as my friends choke on NFL pools. Once you uh, are a shit-eating wild person and you build allegiances and are emotionally invested to a fighter or team, uh, I bring this up as an example of how we build our narratives of what slash who we think. People are, and I am wondering how you preclude this from influencing your reporting or writing, or do you?
2: I think there's something to that, especially with picking winners and losers, because you do, especially in this sport, where you form these opinions about the individual people. I mean, it's one thing in football where, like, maybe you have a feeling about the team because of how you your history with it or the city or whatever. But it's less common where you know you're picking actual individuals who you have developed strong feelings about one way or another. But with fighting, I mean that's pretty much exactly what it is. You're watching these people, you get an idea of who they are in your head, and that definitely affects who you think you're going to, who you think is going to win, and how you can talk yourself into thinking that some people are going to win, even when in retrospect afterwards it becomes clear that that was never going to happen. So yeah, I mean, and and as far as like how it affects when writing, I think for us on the, the journalist side, I think it's more often a practical concern that you kind of have a list in your mind of people like this person will answer the phone for one thing. So that's that's a big thing they got going in their favor. And also this person is thoughtful, will give good answers. You know, it won't be a pain in the ass to interview them. Uh, that stuff, I think, affects us more than just like, oh, hey, I, I like this person. Or I think that this person is cool. Uh, it's. And, you know, there was the other side, too, where people going, hey, I know if you can get any kind of headline with Conor McGregor in it, you're going to do a lot more clicks on it. Uh, And That kind of stuff affects especially people who work at more click-dependent websites than we do right now. But I think for us, it it more has to do with here's what I think I can expect from this person, and that affects how I write about them.
1: Yeah, you know, as far as, like, doing journalism is concerned, I think everyone in the world who does journalism probably has opinions about their beat. You know what I mean? Like people who cover local city council elections or whatever, who interact with people on their city council probably have people that they like and people that they dislike people that they think are easy to work with and people that they think are difficult to work with. And so like, it's not all that different in, in sports writing. If you cover the NFL, uh, or if you cover MMA, we probably all have our favorites. We probably all have the teams that we grew up cheering for if you cover a team sport. But at the same time, like, I don't necessarily know that journalism technically asks you to be a robot, like a person that doesn't have feelings or doesn't have preferences. But, you know, it just asks you to be fair when you're right. And it asks you to uh, play it as, as straight as you can. And clearly, uh, sometimes personal opinion can affect you know, how you prognosticate a fight. I mean, I can't sit here and tell you that I didn't just spend a bunch of time on the co-main event podcast last week, developing an impassioned, uh, argument for why Donald Cerrone would at least try to wrestle Conor McGregor. He didn't get a chance to do any of that, but I don't know if that was in the game plan. (laughs) In retrospect, it kind of seemed like, uh, Cerrone was resigned to whatever was going to happen on the feet. And so, uh, Sometimes I think it it affects our thinking, but just in terms of like writing about the sport and stuff, I think you're right. Number one, the the people who get, who appear to get preferential treatment sometimes from the media are oftentimes the people who are just dependable, the people who you can count on to like be at the place that they say they're going to be, or the, or you can count on that they're going to be there to answer the phone at the time, the appointed time that you're going to call them. And so like, and, and like everybody has people that they like in the sport and, and you know, everybody has people that they don't like in the sport but at the same time i think that it's it's not as big of an issue as i think some people think to to be fair and and you know write stuff that that is is fair to to all parties involved so uh that's how i handle it anyway um, yeah. hey, let's do this This question from Trevor Finch, who writes, I am back to rep my guy, Drew Dober, disrespected by Vegas odds, but still wins with a huge early KO. I don't know if he has the talent to go all the way, but his respect for his opponents is unparalleled. Uh, with the current UFC atmosphere of fighters like Colby Covington thriving on controversy, how do honorable fighters like Dober get some shine without dropping to that level?
2: Well, you know, one thing that you have to appreciate Drew Dober for is for being one of the prettiest men in the damn game. I don't know if you follow his Instagram, but it's just shot after shot of Drew Dober practically auditioning for a male model job. I don't know how Luke Rockhold has himself male model gigs and Drew Dober doesn't. Yeah, he's he's an attractive man, Chad. I want to hear you say it.
1: I mean, yeah, he's an attractive man. He there's right this, the, there's something about Drew Dober that makes him look kind of like the bad guy to me in like Karate Kid. Like he's the guy who's gonna get thrown in the swimming pool at the end of a John Hughes movie. The guy who's been like, but he's super nice. I know, but I'm just saying the the, the look. The look. He looks like the all American like quarterback type. You know, he looks like he's gonna be the guy who's gonna uh, sweep the leg on uh, on Ralph Macchio.
2: <laughs> How dare you? Well. <laughs> I
1: think one of the problems
2: of like how does uh, Drew Dober get himself some attention is that, if you'll recall, the last time he fought was in June at that event in Minneapolis, when where we Francis Ngannou, uh knocked out Junior Dos Santos. He was on that card. that I, I believe, a first-round knockout victory in that one. And then was saying right afterwards, like, give me another fight. I want to fight again. I talked to him a few months ago, and he was just like, I'm just sitting around here waiting for a fight, and it's taken a long time, and I want to get back in there. He was pretty unscathed after that one, and it's like seven months go by before yeah. the USC finally gets him in there for another fight, and that to me, like, how do you expect the guy to get any traction if you only let him fight like basically an average of like two times a year? So especially he goes out there in this one where he was the underdog. No one, everybody was kind of looking at, uh, and I was across like, okay, this is the guy that we're excited about here, and then Drew Gober slept him. And now what? Does, does he have to wait another six months to get a fight? Because people are going to forget about
1: that by then. Yeah. I, I think one of the issues here is he's fighting at lightweight. So he's in the shark tank where there's just a million guys. And uh, also where the, the title picture seems all wrapped up in what Conor McGregor may or may not do. Uh, so, you know, Drew Dober is five and one in his last six now. He's clearly a guy. Uh, to reckon with at this point, as I think we found out once again over the weekend, he's still 31 years old in the prime of his career. Uh, And it seems like a guy who could definitely be going places. It's just that, As we talk about all the time on the show, and as you mentioned, just I think you can tell from the time that it takes between his fights to get him a a new booking. Like there's so many fighters, there's so many events, and especially at lightweight where you know you've got this huge glut of talent, it's just super, super hard to make a name for yourself. Especially if you are a guy who plays it relatively straight. If you're a guy whose natural personality doesn't doesn't uh, make for a Colby Covington or Chael Sonnen type. Antics that you know, you kind of got to do it with what you do in the cage, and and uh, even in this event, when you're the first prelim, you know, you're the first fight on ESPN after the the UFC fight pass portion of the card, like it can be tough to stand out, especially when you're on a card where the aftermath of it is going to be uh, almost exclusively spent talking about Conor McGregor and Donald Cerrone, and then next weekend, oh yeah, we got two MMA events again, right? UFC Raleigh and a Bellator are both going down. So, uh, it's, uh, there's just not a lot of breathing room, man. There's just not a lot of room for guys like Drew Dober to, to get ahead these days, which is kind of unfortunate.
2: Yeah. Maybe you'll have to rely on, uh, my fans discovering how beautiful he is.
1: (laughs) This, uh, in a general sense, this UFC 246 card was kind of a bad night for up and coming prospects for the most part, right? You get Nas, Nasrat, uh, Hakperast loses, uh, you got, uh, alexa camera who beat justin Ledette but like did so without i think the fireworks that the ufc were, were looking for from an undefeated up-and-coming light heavyweight uh i guess oscar 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 uh he got it he got a win but i don't know if that if many people are talking about it uh, uh ode osborne got beat by brian kelleher obviously we talked about macy barber maurice green lost just a lot of uh a lot of prospects that I think the UFC was looking to get out there in front of people and maybe kind of get over with the, with the big audience came up short on this night.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think Sadiq Youssef had a good night there against Andre Feely. But yeah. also, I mean, the the ESPN card, that portion of the prelims, I think just in general, delivered a whole lot more fun than the most of the main card. And so, uh, I mean, I appreciate the UFC win. So it's like, let's put some action fights. Let's put some, some young people that uh, we might be hoping will turn into a thing. Let's put them on the ESPN portion of the car so that uh, we have a better chance of, you know, getting some momentum rolling into the main car. More people maybe will get excited about what they're seeing and buy the pay-per-view or just tune in and find out about somebody new who they want to find out about going forward. But uh, also, it's kind of a downer when you have, all right, we've got like four – pretty good action fights going on there. And then we'll get to the main card, the board, the part we're actually paying for. And you get like an hour or two in and you're wondering like, Oh man, what did I just spend my 65 bucks on?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Even though, like I said, at the top of the show, even though we got this big win for Conor McGregor, I feel like a lot of people came away from UFC 246 kind of feeling like it, it, uh, it wasn't worth the money. So I think that's a, well, uh,
2: one point that I want to make before we wrap up is especially in the, the current age that we're living in, we talked before about how when a lot of people are looking at it and going, i got to pay for the ESPN Plus subscription and then i got to pay 65 bucks for pay-per-view or if there's only one fight that I care about on the card, I could maybe sit this one out and try to see if I can find the, the highlights or something afterwards. Now, I wasn't even looking for it because I watched the fight on ESPN, right. but immediately afterwards and into the next day, on Sunday, I'm just scrolling through Twitter and I just stumble across the full fight, the entire Conor McGregor, Donald Cerrone fight right there on Twitter. Yeah. I could see some of them being taken down, but there's more being put up faster than you can take them down. There's no problem for you if you sat this one out and then wanted to find the entire fight on social media. There was no difficulty in being able to pull that off, which makes me think. Well, we've talked before about how long will pay-per-view even continued to be a viable model that people will just decide, like, we don't do this anymore. But also, if you're going to do the boxing thing where you're, you know, you're saying we're putting this fight card out there with one fight that we know you're paying for, that really increases the odds that people are going to look at it and go, I don't know. If I only want to see one, and if I know that there's a good chance that you can't stop the the Internet from giving it to me for free afterwards, then why would I pay for the entire thing? the way you combat that kind of piracy, I think is by having good full main cards, the kind where people are going, you know what? I want to see three or four of these fights really badly. So I'm not just going to like sit around and try to find the highlights for all of them. Uh, that's the way that you can undercut that a little bit, but it doesn't seem like the UFC is interested Instead, It seems like it's going to still, you know, he's still fighting the piracy battle in the sense that you're, you're fucking with your own fans at times and being dicks to people who are just putting up like fan made stuff. And you're yet, you're not making any real headway into the actual problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then you look at, uh, next week's card, you got Curtis blades and junior dos Santos in the main event and, uh, Javier dos Anjos and Michael Chiesa in the co-main event. And you also got, uh, Angela Hill on this card. So like there's three fights right there that you probably could have thrown somewhere on the UFC 246 uh, main card or uh, prelim card. And, and, you know, immediately increased the interest immediately increased most likely the quality of the show. So, uh, you know, once again, I feel like a lot of it comes down to you're doing 42 events a year or whatever it is you got, you know, you're just spread a little bit thin. Uh, actually one thing that I wanted to talk about before we wrap up that I forgot to mention earlier, I think one of the things that you either got to appreciate about Conor McGregor or just laugh at is his ability uh, or uh, his propensity to show up and claim that he's made history. Did you? Yeah. Did you see this after the fight? He gets on the mic and he talks about how he made history, setting another record. And then yeah, he, talks he, about, he
2: had that one chewed up. He was ready for
1: that. Yeah, he's he's the. Uh, he talks about how he's the first fighter in UFC history to, to uh, secure knockout victories across three divisions. Uh, well, featherweight, lightweight, and welterweight, obviously. Uh, and I'm really glad that uh, bloody elbows. Antoine Tobuena did a story about it today. Cause I remember as it happened, I was kind of like, okay, number one, that sounds like a made up thing that, uh, that you just decided you was a thing that you was the milestone that you were going to achieve here against Donald Cerrone to, as I believe he said, etch my name into history or whatever he said. Uh, and number two, like, I don't know if that's right, man. Like, I don't know if he is the first <laughs> fighter to get knockout victories across three different weight classes. So I was glad to see bloody elbow kind of get on it today with a fact check here. Uh, and it turns out from reading this article, like if he, if McGregor specifically meant that he is the first fighter to win knockout victories across these specific weight classes, featherweight, lightweight, and welterweight, then he is correct that he is the first person to do that. But if he just means across three weight classes, like there's a list of several guys who have actually done that before. Vitor Belfort (laughs) being one of them, uh, Jared Cannonier being one of them. And uh, I think, uh, I think those are the two guys, but uh, (laughs) still like, hmm, I don't know, Connor, you know, uh, I guess yeah, I, re- I, mean, the I respect the hustle. It, yeah, the,
2: the way he phrased it was, like, "I'm the first one to secure knockout victories at featherweight, at lightweight, and now welterweight." Like that, may, that he, he did seem to be referring to those three. But you could tell by the way he immediately latched onto that right after the fight that this was something that he already had. That he was like, "Okay, here's how I can make this seem like an even more like historic kind of thing." And he, he just like we've given him credit before, where. When he beat Eddie Alvarez, to be like, "Where's my other belt? Get my both get both belts in here, so you can have that picture and really solidify that moment." It seemed like this was the thing he had in his head for this one. But, you know, we complain about guys not doing enough to promote themselves and just getting on there and talking about how they'll do whatever the UFC wants for them next. So maybe we can't complain too much about a guy who is a little too laser focused on the things <laughs> he is going to shout out about himself.
1: He sees the big picture. Let's just let's just put it that way. It's this historical thinker Conor McGregor, just it so happens that this time maybe the thing he was focused on is kind of made up. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, we will be back a week from today to break down all the stuff that happens in this fairly busy week upcoming weekend in mixed martial arts. Actually, uh, I'm going to be on the road the rest of this week, so I don't think there will be a live chat or a power hour. Although Ben says he's going to do a uh, an open thread. Over there. Yeah,
2: I'll do that.
1: On the Patreon page. So if you're a member at uh, patreon.com slash event, you could do that on Wednesday. People seem to like that. The last couple times I did it, so we're gonna give it that another go. And if you're not a member Go over to patreon.com slash co-main event, support the show, help keep the discourse unfettered. You can join at three different tiers, $1, $5, $10 uh, with a bunch of different uh, free content. I guess not free, but additional content that you get uh, for supporting the show. And uh, you also become our best friend. So there's that.
2: That's a big, big benefit. Yep. All Uh, right. So we can crash on your couch after that.
1: Well, we we did a multimedia version of the CME today, Skype and on the phone. So, don't know if I can vouch for for the for our normal sound quality, but uh, it was a big weekend after UFC 246, so we did wanted to get some stuff out there. Thanks for joining us. As of right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.